You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad you're here. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Gavin Francis. Dr. Francis is a general physician with more than 30 years of training and practice in medicine. He's a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh and a fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners. He's also an award-winning writer and a contributor to The Guardian, Times, New York Review of Books, Granta, and The London Review of Books. He's authored eight books, including Empire Antarctica, Adventures in Human Being, and Shapeshifters on Medicine and Human Change, which was a book of the year in the Sunday Times. Now in this episode, he's discussing his latest book, Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. In this book, he's unveiling the hidden gems of healing, challenging the notion that recovery is a mere obstacle on the road to health, but rather an active process that we all must engage in if we want to get back to true health. Now, Dr. Francis is drawing on over 30 years of medicine and on insights from practitioners, psychologists, and his own patients. This is a beautiful book that I think is going to be really helpful in reframing how we all think about convalescence and getting to true health and what is actually true health. Um, So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Um, No doubt you've had to heal from something or you know someone who has, whether it's a broken bone or even just a period of depression or anxiety, whatever it may be, there are so many lessons that we can draw from this period of darkness, from this period of convalescence. And it doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can actually be a really beautiful thing that we grow and learn from. So I'm so excited to share this episode with you and his work. Dr. Francis is an amazing individual. Um, Definitely check him out and please enjoy this episode with Dr. Gavin Francis. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Gavin Francis. I'm so glad that you're here. Oh, thank you for having me along. Absolutely. And we're here to talk about your new book. Um, Before we get into all of that, can you talk about the main events in your life, specifically your childhood, that led you to uh, focus on this and this really crucial, important part of healing? Um, Sure. Yeah, thank you. So um, I grew up in Scotland near Edinburgh, and I described quite near the beginning of this book two contrasting experiences of recovery I had very early on. And one was when I had an accident of a bicycle, which broke a bone in my leg, broke my tibial plateau. And and I had my leg immobilized for a couple of months. And then I described the the slow recovery from that, rebuilding the, the, the balance and the strength in that leg. And also, as a child, I suffered from meningitis. And that gave a very different experience of recovery in the sense that meningitis um, was exhausting. I had a lot of fatigue afterwards, headaches. There was a kind of slow recovery from that, which was very different in nature from the one where I was watching my leg slowly build up health and strength again. And so I used those two stories early on in the book to try and make the point. Um, I'm very aware, both from personal experience and from my work as a physician, that recovery takes many different forms with different people. Many, it's, it's unique, really, both to the individual and to the condition that you're recovering from. But there are some general principles, I think, that we can draw out that can be useful in, in lots of different situations. Yeah. 
And I love how you talk about the impact of culture in healing and how different it could be in the United States versus Asia and how culture really does impact our our thinking around healing, our expectations around healing. Can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. So um, something that I've become increasingly aware of, I wasn't so aware of when I was still at medical school, but then gradually as I began to practice, first in emergency medicine, and then as a primary care physician, I started to realize very much that illness is as much about culture, really, as it is about disease, in the sense that we fall ill in patterns that we almost expect to, and our expectations of the body also influence the way we recover as well as the way we follow. And there's lots of different examples of that, different kind of cultural conditions which which afflict certain kinds of groups and not others. Um, one of the ones I home in on um, with regard to the kind of Western European culture that I'm part of is there can be a real lack of self-compassion and people often drive themselves very hard try and push themselves back to work before they're really ready to go back to work and quite a lot of my job as a primary care physician is about reassuring people that they really do need to take time off that actually in some situations their work is making them unwell or ill or delaying their recovery and so trying to encourage people to take that permission to give recovery the adequate time and respect that it deserves. Why do you think we are so reticent to to do the healing work, to really dive deep, to let the body do what it needs to do in, you know, western culture? Is it do you think it's programmed from birth or do you think we're all just comparing ourselves to each other more than other cultures? Yes, I think there's lots of different roots to it. There's often, often, I mean, obviously one of the biggest roots is is economic. So Mm -hmm. if you don't have um, a safety net and you're going to lose your income if you're off work, that, of course, is a huge driver. Connected to that economic factor is what you just alluded to, the kind of competitiveness that people feel that they're letting colleagues down and them letting themselves down if they take a step back. And so there's a real kind of competitive drive to keep um, ahead, whether it's in your career or whether it's in terms of trying to keep up with your neighbors in terms of how well you feel you're fulfilling your parenting duties. Um, There's a kind of competitive edge there that people push themselves to. Um, I think those are probably the two main ones that drive us in the West or that I see among my own patients. Sometimes um, if people have got a very good close-knit family, we've got a lot of close family around them that are able to take up some of the slack and help them, that can be really helpful. And so I guess another cultural element is is if the family is quite um, uh, divided and split up geographically and the people don't have close relatives nearby, and that can be a real difficulty in terms of recovery from illness too. Right. This this period of healing you talk about in the book is so important, not only just to get to where we were before, but I love how you talk about to get to a point of what's possible and to reframe it that way and to look at our lives differently. Um, a moment of injury and illness is really just the beginning of a new journey. Can you speak to that and 
and how we can all, you know, the woman tuning into this can, you know, whether she's experienced illness or not, or someone in her family, how she can begin to reframe how she thinks about healing. Mm. Well, you know, when I was a medical student, they used to teach us this definition of health, which was um, health is um, complete social, physical, and mental well-being. And I remember thinking when I was a medical student, I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, that must be almost nobody has complete mm -hmm. social, physical, and mental well-being. So what proportion of the global population has actually got health under that definition? And slowly, I, as, I, as I worked and gained more experience as a physician, I realized, well, no, actually, I think that's quite a poor definition. And health to an 18-year-old means something very different from health to a 40-year-old, to a 60-year-old, to an 80-year-old. And that health is much better reframed as a balance between extremes, a bit more of a kind of old-fashioned classical approach to health. But that it means something different for different people and at different stages of your life. And it's much more helpful rather than having some sort of golden perfection that you're always striving and failing to reach, to think about health in terms of achievable goals and in terms of the possibilities that are open to you. And I quote this um, wonderful rehabilitation physician, a chap called uh, Christopher Ward, and he works helping people rehabilitate from the most disabling, appalling injuries. And he says that very early on in a therapeutic relationship, he tries to talk to people about this idea of possibilitation rather than rehabilitation. What is going to be possible for you in this new situation that your illness has or your, your injury has thrust upon you? How can we get you into the best possible place to live with the least suffering, with the most dignity, with the most autonomy? What is going to be possible and what can we do to help facilitate that? And I think it's a much more generous, kind of magnanimous way of thinking about health that I admire. You know, some, some of my patients, for example, have incurable illnesses. You know, if you have an incurable illness, I still want to think you can recover in the sense of building towards that life of more dignity, more autonomy, less suffering. It just, we just have to take a different kind of route to it. And what are some of the best ways to optimize, to approach healing in a strategic way that are going to get you to that place, to be more graceful towards yourself? I mean, what can what can we all do? Because we're all going to, like you said in the book, we're all going to be patients at some point. Yeah. Well, um, I tried to put some summarizing principles into the, the chapters, um, examine different aspects. So um, one aspect is, is about trying to give recovery and convalescence the respect that it deserves. One is about the environment that we choose to recover in. One is about the different kinds of therapies. Do you know, we need to expand our mind beyond thinking of therapy as just pills and realize that it can be all sorts of things. You know, getting a pet can be therapy. You know, joining a choir can be therapy. Um, joining a dance class, that kind of thing. And so some principles that I try to set out with patients that are struggling with recovery would be that remember that recovery isn't really passive, that it's an act and, and you do it better if you engage with it as an act. And it can also 
be sometimes an opportunity as well as an imposition. You know, I, I often find patients that are going through a difficult period of illness and slow recovery find that they reconsider their priorities and reframe their priorities because of that experience, sometimes in a very positive way. And I also try and stake a claim which um, some of my medical colleagues disagree with, <laughs> that medicine actually is relatively limiting in its power. I mean, modern Western medicine is really good at things like curing infectious illnesses, treating tumors with chemotherapy. It's good at fixing broken bones with titanium screws. But there's lots of different conditions that modern Western medicine isn't particularly good at um, addressing. And so there are older, more traditional perspectives on recovery from those that I try to elucidate in the book. Um, so don't, don't look to modern Western medicine necessarily for all the cures for everything, because some things it really isn't very good at treating. I would imagine your peers would bristle a little bit at that, you know, to hear you speak or to read that in your book, um, you know, because you're trained that doctors know all and, and, and you know, are the solution to all of your problems. And if you go anywhere else, well, then you're a fool. Um, so how do you interact then with your peers when they do differ in their opinions on things like this? Because this is huge. Yeah, um, I mean, I think most primary care physicians, like certainly like most psychiatrists, um, you know, about a third of my workload is to do with mental health as a primary care mm. physician. And... Um, and, and we're aware that a lot of medicine doesn't have quick fixes. This isn't like cardiology where you're just putting in a stent and dissolving cholesterol. It isn't like orthopedic surgery where you're just putting bones back together with screws and bits of metal. Do you know, this is about, it's about life. It's about belief and it's about expectations. And it's much more messy. Than, than those other branches of medicine, but it also can be really much more rewarding and enthralling. And so I find actually that when I have these conversations with my peers, that they do start to say, oh yeah, I know what you mean, or I see what you mean. Mm -hmm. um, I think one example is the chapter that I wrote in this book is called The Ideal Doctor, and it stakes out my position, which is that over 30 years in medicine, I've realized that the very best doctors are the ones who can intuit or figure out quite quickly after meeting a patient what kind of approach they should take. You know, should they take a very kind of distant, objective, scientific approach? Should they take a much more um, touchy-feely kind of um, uh, gentle approach, so soft or should they maybe take a kind of collaborative approach where they, they form an alliance with the patient together and go on a journey together through this illness? Do you know, the really good physicians, I think, figure out which kind of doctor they need to be to help that particular patient. And when I, when I discuss that with my colleagues, usually they, they recognize that. They say, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, do you know, I've met people who, you know, you try to adopt a kind of very um, objective scientific approach and it just doesn't work and you have to adopt something much more collaborative or vice versa. I would imagine too as a doctor you're seeing so many patients 
after so many years, you would either have to adapt to be like that or you would get burnt out yourself. Do you find that that to be true? Yeah, I think that the most, uh, the, the happiest doctors are the ones that stay curious about mm-hmm. their fellow human beings, are genuinely interested in hearing about other people's lives. And um, yeah, who manage to hold on to that satisfaction of really caring about what happens. And, and it's very easy to get burnt out. The, the pressure of demand sometimes can be quite overwhelming and it would be too much for anybody. And so I always, when I speak to colleagues as well, I, I, I spend quite a lot of time talking about avoiding burnout, like trying to keep your love for the job, trying to keep your enthusiasm and your curiosity about your fellow human beings, which is the way to keep being happy as a, as a clinician. Yeah. I mean, I, my sister works in oncology and she, she'll tell me stories about trying to help patients and, and they'll pass and it's devastating to her. And I just wonder, you know, how do you as a physician stay strong, stay resilient, um, stay curious after everything that you've seen and experienced in your work? Um, well, I'm, I'm a primary care physician. And so the tremendous variety is something that keeps me really satisfied and interested, you know, because although I've been doing this for a lot of years, um, I still, I've never had two days the same. So I've never had two mm-hmm. days where the same stories come through the door. There's always something different. And every week, there's somebody who'll come with, with a story or a problem that I've never come across before. And so that keeps me really engaged and curious. Also, my family, I've got, I've got three young kids. I'm very engaged with them and their <laughs> lives and very drawn into, um, um, like, all the kind of, they're all teenagers now. So all the, the fascination of that. And, um, yeah, and I spend a lot of time doing kind of outdoor cycling, walking, hiking, that kind of thing. And through those three, um, you know, family and outdoors and my professional life, I seem to keep my interest and engagement with the work. Do you find that you're more motivated to have that full bill of health um, in your own life because of what you see day to day? I mean, I'm sure you see healthy people all the time too, but I would imagine if you're seeing people who are afflicted by disease or some kind of illness, I mean, it would motivate me to like get to the gym, to eat the salad versus the hamburger, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something I've tried to write about a little bit in this book is um, the very occasional, I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that they're common, these things, but occasional advantages of illness. And one of those advantages, which is a very tiny silver lining on a big cloud, is is that it really helps you to cherish health and wellness when you have it or when you see it in others. And certainly my medical work has given me a really heightened awareness of the preciousness of of health. And um, when I come home from a really busy or difficult day dealing with a lot of complex problems um, to chat with my family over dinner, um, it definitely heightens the, 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 the satisfaction or how rewarding that is if I'm aware of just how fragile health is how easily things can be taken away from us and so if illness has got any positives in our life then maybe that's one of them to remind us of the fragility really of our wellness and our health and to to help us to cherish it when we have it 
Do you think that that is truly the ultimate lesson why we as humans have to go through certain periods of downtime of stillness to to learn that lesson? Um, well, I wish it was as I wish the universe was as um, goal directed as that as to try and teach us lessons. Sometimes I feel it's just yeah, it's it's really random and and unfortunately it's really very difficult when. When people suffer, suffering is a terrible thing to have to endure and it's a terrible thing to see in others, especially when you feel, as so often is, very, very undeserved. Um, but it does, you're quite right, it does heighten the preciousness of it. And our, um, You mentioned recharging, so stillness helps us recharge. And, and I think that all human beings need periods of rest and reflection and convalescence is one way of obliging us to do that. You know, when you're recovering from an illness, you really have to stop for a while. And I've known many patients over the years that lead busy, stressful lives, whether they be executives in big companies or whether they be um, homemakers with a lot of demands from family. Um, when they, an illness is actually force them to stop and re kind of reconfigure their priorities. That has ultimately proven to be a helpful change in their life. And it's something they wouldn't have chosen to go through, but I guess that's the great trick in life, isn't it? Is trying to pick up the, the those odd silver linings from the clouds that keep coming over us. Mm, I love that. And I would think too, as a dad, I mean, that's something that you try to impart to your children are they receptive to to this latest book, to to your philosophy on life when it comes to healing? I mean, they're so much younger. And like you said, at, at that age, your idea of health and how life should be is different than when you're older. Yeah, absolutely. No, I do try and encourage them to, to have a bit of self-compassion, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of if they're not feeling 100% to say, well, it's fine, you know, not to go and do your... Um, you know, go play hockey or basketball or it's fine to have a, a duvet weekend if you're feeling below par. You know, I'm trying to teach them those little lessons of that, that sometimes a little bit of self-compassion can ultimately help you in the longer run. It makes you feel stronger and better afterwards than just keeping pushing yourself because you feel you ought to do something. I love that. I love that. Do you think it was you getting meningitis or getting in, on that bike accident in your childhood that kind of formed the foundation for this philosophy on life? Or do you think it was just being in the medical field for so many years and seeing so many patients and helping them through these periods of, of convalescence? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I, I sometimes think back on these childhood experiences and wonder if that's what triggered me to want to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'd never been unwell as a child, I would never really have encountered hospitals. And my my memory of hospitals are very is very positive. You know, it was a place where I felt um, I felt that, that how worthwhile and how useful it was as a job. I felt very safe when I was there. That people knew what they were doing and looking after me and helping me to get better. And that probably did lay a bit of a foundation stone in my idea of wanting to study medicine. This book itself actually grew out of um, seeing so many patients recovering or struggling to recover from COVID. 
because I had a mm-hmm. lot of patients who were really very fatigued after they had COVID or they were really very breathless after they had COVID. And I realized I was having similar conversations again and again with these patients, or, you know, they're young and old, they were all sectors of society. And I realized that there were certain principles that I took for granted that they didn't take for granted. And so it was quite helpful for me to distill all those nuggets of wisdom I picked up over the years practicing medicine, put them all in one short, accessible, fairly, um, you know, compact book. Um, So that was the initial impulse, was realizing just how often I was having to have conversations about principles of convalescence with, with people in that year through 2021, 2022. Yeah. Did you find that people really had no understanding of true convalescence, no real way to wrap their heads around it? I mean, is everyone that you meet and that you were talking to who fell ill and wasn't back right where they wanted to be, were they confused? Like, what is going on? What is it? I don't want to stop. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something to do with what you alluded to earlier in terms of our, our society pushes us to achieve. It's quite a kind of high stress, high turnover, high speed society. There's a lot of expectations come with that. And with that also comes a kind of degree of impatience. Um, and I have had so many conversations with people who've, who've understandably found themselves very impatient with how long it's taking them to recover. You know, we've got kind of used to the idea that modern medicine is really magical and can fix things very, very quickly. And through the 1950s and 1960s, you know, as more and more antibiotics were developed and inhalers were developed and steroids and chemotherapies, and we got more and more used to the idea that modern medicine should have quick fixes for almost anything that goes wrong with us. But my experience has been very different, actually, of practicing medicine and that the number of conditions that can be quickly and easily cured um, is actually quite small. And and I often have to spend time with my patients trying to um, trying to encourage them to be a little less impatient, to, to understand that this can be a slow process of your body gathering strength again. The word convalescence means to grow in strength. You know, that's what it's origin is if you go back into the roots of the word and it's a lovely way of thinking about that slow process of growing back into health and strength after an illness Mm. what changes would you like to see in the medical establishment in the western world to have a more holistic approach to think like you so that they can better help their patients Um, because like you said it's not a quick quick fix yeah and Different places, it's got, there's different pressures, isn't there? You know, in the UK, we don't have very much time with our doctors at all. I would love to have more time with my patients to be able to properly explore what their expectations are and get more of an understanding of what their priorities are, too. So more time would make a big, big difference. Um, I would also like to see medical schools emphasize a little bit more that they don't have all the answers. <laughs> I think oh. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they inculcate in medical students this kind of expectation that if you just get a big enough textbook, you can find all the answers. But 
my experience has been that that isn't the case, actually. And um, the very best doctors I've worked with have been the ones that recognize that and realize that sometimes the answers don't lie in a book. They lie in a different kind of attitude or, or developing a different kind of relationship with the patient. You know, the, the word doctor originally comes from a kind of root meaning guide. Do you know, and I like that idea of doctor as a kind of guide to helping you through the landscape of illness. But doctors very rarely have all the answers. Some conditions, they do have all the answers. But for a lot of conditions, we don't have all the answers. Um, and so what I can offer my patients when I don't have all the answers is a kind of companionable guide approach to helping them through a kind of landscape that I've seen other people cross successfully in the past. You know, there's a kind of um, almost like a terrain of illness that I see often in my work that I might be able to help people through, but I don't know everything about it and I don't have every single answer. Yeah, maybe if we could imbue our medical students with a little bit more humility, that would help. Mm, that's powerful. I think that's a beautiful approach to medicine. And I think when you come into a, a room and you have that kind of energy, immediately the patient is already doing better, you know, because you're receptive and you're really truly present and listening. Yeah, no, I've worked with some doctors over the years who are really, really got that kind of charisma who can really um, inspire confidence and also at the same time as inspiring confidence that they know what they're doing. Um, they are open to, to modifying their approach depending on what the patient needs. And I've tried hard to, to learn from that when I've got adequate time. You know, consultations mm. are always so pressed for time. Right, right. Well, I think too, I mean, we have so many doctors tuning into this show and it's, there's this, there's this sense of one. I mean, that's why you got into the profession, right? It wasn't all ego. It was to help people and to heal people. And there's that desire to do that. And so I think to hear you say that they're all kind of going like, yeah, exactly. You know, like we want to do better. We need to do better. But again, it's that, it's that little trick of time that we're all, we're all pressed against the wall. All of us. Yeah. And there's something as well that I wanted to try and highlight in this book, which will be very resonant for your listeners, which is to do with caring for the caregivers. You know, like mm. so much of um, our, our modern medical system allocates people quite short periods of time with their physicians, you know, sort of short, intermittent bursts of, of contact. And for most people who are in convalescence, the time that they're spending they're spending far more time with their caregivers and how we better support caregivers by acknowledging the stress and the difficulties of caring is something that I think in medicine we could do a lot better with acknowledging. Um, you know, I saw that hugely during the pandemic when a lot of, um, a lot of third sector services, a lot of kind of um, support services for people suffering chronic illness were closed down. And so the stresses on carers and caregivers really increased enormously during that period. Um, and I hope that as we rebuild following the pandemic and rebuild our services, we, we do it with the needs of those caregivers in mind. I love that. And we could end on that. Um, 
But Dr. Francis, if there were anything that you would want to leave with the listener today uh, about your work, about your life, about your thoughts um, on this on this important period of healing, what would that be? Um, I think it would just be that um, doctors and nurses are really, we're more like gardeners than we are like mechanics. We don't fix broken parts. It's about trying to create the right environment for people best to heal. And so if you're struggling with chronic illness, you know, trying to give that process of healing the respect and the attention that it deserves to engage with it and, um, and look among your physicians, look for somebody who's going to appreciate that central importance of trying to create the right environment, environment that, that's going to help you heal the best you can. I love that. I love that. Well, your patients are extremely lucky to have a doctor like you. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and share your thoughts with my audience. Your wonderful book is out in the world. How can our listeners find you online and get the book? Um, yeah, so the book is um, published by Penguin Life. It's called Recovery, the Lost Art of Convalescence. Um, there is an audiobook too, which I greatly enjoyed reading myself. Oh. Um, yeah. And um, there is, yeah, you can read about it on my website. I've got a website, which is just my name, gavinfrancis.com. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. This is great. Okay, thank you, Liz. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to share it out, subscribe, and leave us a review. Till next time. <laughs>